Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in Central Africa, with the capital Gitega, a population of 12.4 million and functioning as a presidential democracy, is Burundi. In 2005, the country of Burundi ended a civil war which had left over 300,000 dead. The relatively small African nation was subsequently then ruled by Pierre Nkurunziza. But when his term limit expired in 2015, the authoritarian leader refused to go, causing widespread instability and even a failed coup, as the country is delicately balanced between different ethnicities. Eventually, Nkurunziza was ousted from office in 2020, but only by his death due to the coronavirus. But how did the country of Burundi end up here? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Burundi, I'm joined on the show by Timothy Longman, who is a professor at Boston University and specializes in African studies. Timothy, welcome to the show. So glad to speak with you. Can you just start by telling us a bit about the history of Burundi? Sure. So Burundi is one of the kind of rare uh, countries in Africa that existed prior to colonialism. Wow, that is rare. How was it formed then? There were a series of kingdoms in um, Central Africa um, that had emerged uh, mostly because it was a highly pop- densely populated area and there was some conflict between cattle, cattle raisers and farmers. So to sort of manage that, there were a number of chieftaincies that emerged and then grew to become larger and became um, kingdoms uh, in order to control land and distribute cattle and things of that sort. So Burundi was one of those. Rwanda was another. Interesting. So the country is kind of able to establish itself in the 17th and 18th century. And this is partly driven by the fact that it is in the interior of Africa. And so it's not as exposed to the early European settlement, like much of the west coast of the continent. And one of the country's other defining features is its mixed ethnicities. Could you just touch on that as well? Burundi uh, has three ethnic groups today, but in pre-colonial times, they weren't ethnicities as we usually think about them. They basically all share the same language. Um, They live in integrated communities interspersed. And there's some controversy over what exactly the labels meant before colonialism. But we generally think that the term Tutsi meant uh, a leader or someone who had followers. And the term Hutu meant uh, a a client or, or a follower or a commoner. And so the two largest groups in Burundi are the, the Hutu who are estimated to be about 85% of the population and the Tutsi who are about 14%. And then there's a smaller ethnic group that's seen as kind of the original inhabitants of the region, the, the Twa, a, a pygmy group. Right. So you have these different ethnic groups, but they kind of live alongside each other. How does the arrival of the European colonial powers, in this case primarily Belgium, affect this situation? When the colonial powers came in, they worked through this system, just said that the Tutsi were the traditional rulers, and they then implemented policies that helped create these groups as really almost racial groups. Okay, so the Europeans kind of formalize and harden the ethnic tensions, right? They implemented a formal system of indirect rule, which basically said the Belgians are at the top, and then they work through the monarchy and the chiefs, and then the monarchy and the chiefs rule over everyone else. But they interpreted the system as basically the Tutsi being in charge. Uh, and they implemented policies that helped to ensure that the Tutsi had greater control. There were taxes that uh, Hutu had to pay that Tutsi didn't. There was labor that the Hutu had to do for Tutsi chiefs. And so 
even though these identities weren't historically ethnic identities, the experience of colonialism transformed them into meaningful identities. Because if you were a Tutsi, you could get an access, access to education. You could get a job with the state. If you were a Hutu, you basically were a farmer who had to pay extra taxes. How fascinating. See, I think a lot of people think that the ethnic conflict in the region is kind of baked in. But it actually seems like Europeans really formalized it and kind of formalized the resulting inequality as well. Now, I think a lot of listeners may be familiar with the ethnic groups we're actually discussing here, but it's actually more because of the neighbor Rwanda rather than Burundi. Can you explain that? Rwanda and Burundi both have Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa in their populations. They were both administered first by the Germans and then by the Belgians. And they both had these systems of indirect rule that led to inequality between the different ethnic groups. And some lots of times throughout history, what has happened in one country has echoed in the other. And so in Rwanda, because of the inequality, there was a Hutu revolution in 1959, um, just on the on the eve of independence. And in Burundi, um, the Tutsi who were in charge looked at that and were very fearful that that could happen to them as well. And so that really became a, 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 a push for the Burundian regime to try to protect uh, the, the minority ethnic group that was in charge. So Burundi gained independence in 1962 under the, under the king. And the king's uh, son was ultimately uh, appointed as a, a prime minister, but was assassinated. Um, before he could really rule very long. And the king himself was pushed out of power in a coup in 1966. And the group that took power was a, a military clique uh, of Tutsi, who basically wanted to ensure that Tutsi could not be pushed out of power. Right. Wow. So how does the post-independent country evolve throughout the 20th century then? In 1972, there was a, a small uprising of Hutu, a sort of small attack of a group of people who were trying to form a rebel group, but they weren't very successful. It was a small group and they're basically a failed attack. But the Burundian military used that as an excuse to launch a major uh, massacre against Hutu. Um, so this group that you know is 14% of the population was really worried that if the Hutu, who were 85%, could organize themselves, they could rise up and slaughter the Tutsi, as has happened in Rwanda. Uh, and so they launched what some people have called a selective genocide, where they killed between 100 and 200,000 Hutu, mostly intellectuals. So they killed teachers and pastors and priests and shop owners. And anybody who was kind of an elite person within the Hutu population was targeted because the idea was if you could eliminate them, then there wouldn't be nobody to organize a rebellion. And so a lot of Hutu fled, mostly to Tanzania, some to Rwanda. Um, so you had Hutu refugee camps set up. And basically, the Hutu were pushed out of power for, for a long time. Okay, wow. So these ethnic divisions really do come to define the country, as the Tutsi in power use force to maintain that position. How is this system eventually broken? Eventually, in the 1990s, there was a democracy movement that swept across Africa, and there was pressure on Burundi to reform its system. And so President Buyoya in 1993 organized elections, the first free and fair elections that Burundi had ever had. The idea was that you know, he thought because he was doing this that the population would reward him, but he lost the elections. And to his credit, he stepped out of power. The man who won was from the longtime Hutu, mostly Hutu party, Frodebu. And so uh, Ndadaya became president in July of 1993. 
Um, he, trying to appease the, the uh, Tutsi who were worried about the change, appointed a, a Tutsi as prime minister, uh, appointed a lot of Tutsi to his cabinet, about half Tutsi and half Hutu. Um, but despite that, there was a coup attempt in October of 1993 in which he was assassinated. Um, and that started Burundi on a real spiral of violence, which continued for uh, over a decade. How tragic. And this leads to the civil war that we spoke about earlier. It was a, a civil war that had its its origins in the camps of Hutu refugees in, in Tanzania. After, after Ndadaye was killed in 1993, there was some ethnic violence. Um, some Hutu rose up to kill Tutsi, some Tutsi killed Hutu. Maybe 100,000 were killed, about uh, equal numbers of each ethnic group. Um, and more Hutu fled the country. And then they started to fight their way back into power. They splintered into a lot of different ethnic groups, uh, excuse me, a lot of different rebel groups. Um, it was a sort of a chaotic uh, chaotic process, but it, it, it became increasingly hard for the regime to control. And, and eventually, through the intervention of the African, uh, African Union, um, there was a peace deal that was negotiated. And so for a couple of years, Buyoya stayed on as president, and then the head of Frodebu became the president. And then there were elections held in uh, 2005. And in those elections, the leader of the largest uh, rebel group actually won the election, Pierre Nkurunziza. And so Pierre Nkurunziza then served as president for the next 15 years in a, a regime that was nominally democratic. Right. So peace was eventually achieved, but it's been secured through a relatively complicated political and legal system. Could you just chat more about that? Well, what's interesting about the transition was that um, the negotiations that went into it created a system that guaranteed Tutsi some power. Um, so it's, it, it was built to be uh, what's called a consociational system, where rather than just having full majority rules, in which the fear is the 14% of the population of the Tutsi would never win elections, they guaranteed some equal representation. So they, they set up the military as 50-50 Hutu and Tutsi. Um, they set up the, the Senate, uh, the upper house, as 50-50 Hutu and Tutsi, and the lower house as 60% Hutu and 40% Tutsi. All the parties that uh, run candidates have to run candidates of multiple ethnic groups. Um, and then they also actually put in a couple of reserved seats for the TWA um, to guarantee that, because they're only 1% of the population, to guarantee that they could get a representation. And so um, it was a system that you know really tried to... Um, appease ethnic sentiments. Um, and interestingly, it was pretty effective. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. But that's kind of faded a bit now, right? It sort of went from this period of a lot of hope right after the transition to sort of increasingly authoritarian practices on the part of the government. And eventually, in, in 2015, things really fell apart. Is that part of the reason the country remains so poor as well? Poverty is, is a huge issue. Um, and frankly, the international community is just not been that committed to stopping poverty and, and solving the problems in Burundi. Uh, Kurunziza was a very popular president in a lot of ways. He was quite populist. He was a man of the people. He hated the capital, hated being in an urban area. He used to go out to the countryside and and play soccer, pick up games of soccer, um, football with the, the, the um, population. Um, he would uh, was known as a very devout Christian. He had a conversion experience to Pentecostalism uh, and really believed that God was on his side. And there's been a big growth of Pentecostalism in, in Burundi as well. Um, but his very strong and public Christian faith resonated with a lot of the population. So you know, he was very popular, but didn't 
governed very effectively and became increasingly authoritarian over time. And there was a lot of corruption in his regime. So certainly one of the things that undermines the economy is sort of the depth of, of corruption. And then he overstays his term limits in 2015. And whilst there is an attempted coup, it is nevertheless unsuccessful. And he stays on for another five years. How does this period look? From 2015, Burundi really has been a, a human rights nightmare. Um, the regime has used a lot of repression against the press, against civil society, and certainly against opposition parties. Yeah, right. And then in 2020, he doesn't actually run again, but he actually dies of COVID, right? Sort of crazy history here, but Currency uh, and his wife both got COVID and um, they were medevaced out of the country and, and he passed away. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the man who'd been elected um, to succeed him took power uh, and is now the, now the president. Um, and has basically continued the same policies of being pretty authoritarian, um, suppressing the press, suppressing civil society organizations. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for bringing us up to date with the current political system. But before you go, would you mind just telling us a bit about a holiday or event that's unique to Burundi? I mean, Burundi is a, a beautiful country. Uh, it is extremely mountainous, and hilly, and and quite verdant. It's just you know, it's it's beautifully green, and so many of the fields are cultivated. Uh, in, in Burundi, much of the economy and the society historically was organized around cattle, and so there are these beautiful cattle that you see wandering around with giant uh, giant horns and in Koli cattle. Um, and um, there is still a, a sort of celebration of, of, of cattle that goes on. Families that raise cattle give names to each of their cattle, and the herd boys write songs for their cows to uh, help them be happy and, and flourish. And um, you still see a lot of that in Burundi. It's still a very rural country, and there is still a, a lot of uh, the life that's sort of based on, on these traditions. It, it's a country where the, the people are quite lovely. It's an understated country. People are, are quiet and reserved. It's, uh, I think when a lot of outsiders think about uh, African countries, um, they imagine Africans being very loud. And you think about, you know, the, the um, you know, talking loud and laughing and wearing bright colors. And Burundi's not like that. Um, Burundi is a, a much more constrained culture. It's, it's quiet and the population is um, very respectful and polite and um, so I, I think it's a very interesting place. It's not very well known. And so I, I think it's a lovely place for people to visit, actually. How interesting. Well, it's certainly made my places to visit list. Thank you so much for your time today, Timothy. It's been so interesting chatting with you about Burundi. All right. Thanks a lot. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Timothy Longman. Join us next time, where we'll be starting on the letter C with the African nation Cabo Verde, which is an archipelago off the coast of West Africa and is amongst the continent's most successful democracies. As always, please do read us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at How My Country Works for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Burundi or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Luke Dimsey. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.